0: Hello and welcome to the Third Sector podcast live from the Fundraising Summit.
1: Excellent. That wasn't in any way rehearsed, was it? You did an absolutely brilliant job of saying hello. Yes, we are doing a live podcast recording. It's the first time we've done it in the podcast history in the whole four or five years however long we've been doing this. We've never actually done a live thing. We've had plenty of chances to say things again when we make mistakes. What are we going to be talking about today, Lucinda?
0: Well, first of all, perhaps we should introduce ourselves. uh, That is a good idea, yeah. For the the purposes (laughs) of the people who aren't in the room and can't see us. So this was the well-known voice of Andy Ricketts. Hello. I am Lucinda Rouse. Alina Martin.
2: And I'm Russell Hargrave, senior news reporter at Third Sector, the country's leading publication for the voluntary and not-for-profit sector.
0: So we are just going to start off. We are at the end of two action-packed days of sessions, roundtable discussions, presentations, from the top minds of the fundraising community. Some might say that this is the headline act of the event. <laughs> um, but you I could... think just
1: Russell would say that. <laughs> I don't think anybody else would.
0: But I'm just going to do a very quick recap of some of the things that we have heard over the course of the past couple of days. So yesterday morning, we started off with a keynote address from Shelter, where it was raised that of course we are experiencing Decreased investment leading to lower levels of innovation when in reality, given the current situation and the demands on our services, we need to be doing exactly the opposite. Also the need for climate and justice considerations to be better embedded into everything that the sector is up to. I noted down bold, react, flex and adapt. So had quite a ring to it. We then moved on to a session looking at the behavioural trends in donating, we heard about trusts and foundations, we heard about the need for a case for support, corporate partnerships and corporate volunteering or not. And then today, amongst a whole load of other things, and I will keep this brief, the <laughs> fundraising regulators pledge to be legal, honest, open and respectful. Have yeah. I got that right?
2: Yeah, or, that's no. what they are. Yes. I'd, I mean, imagine if they pledge to be illegal. That would, have, that would have been a hell of a
1: newsline. Good stuff. So what are we going to be talking about in this particular session, Lucinda, for those who haven't already been primed and who are listening for the first time in the Third Sector podcast?
0: So this afternoon we will be talking about the top fundraising innovations. Yes. Yeah. And each of us is going to pitch an idea, uh, what we consider to be the best fundraising innovation of all time, and then we would like to receive your votes on what you think the winner should be.
2: For sure. Okay, shall I go first? Is this how it's going to work? Please do. Okay, so I'm already extremely nervous about this being the crowd to which I'm going to pitch this idea. But I think one of the, greatest, the one of the most impactful innovations in recent history in fundraising is chuggers. Even a term that I know is designed to frustrate and infuriate even the most committed and hardened fundraiser. Why do I say this? Listen, face-to-face fundraising has been around for years and years and years and years. And years. And I remember as a much younger boy in the 1980s going around with my dad, knocking on doors in the small Welsh village where we grew up, and collecting money for the lifeboats. To this day, I should have done this before we started recording, I should have asked my dad why it was the lifeboats, given that we were in this kind of landlocked, <laughs> tiny little village. That nobody said. But there you are, these great institutions that raise money in all sorts of different ways. And you'd go and you'd knock on the doors of your neighbours and you'd explain why, and I guess you had a cute kid with you, or in this case me. And you, you might be able to squeeze a five pound note or a pound coin out of somebody. And what sort of face-to-face fundraising then seemed to become is something a bit more about finding people where they are, not just in their homes, but when they are going to work, when they're coming out of buildings, when they're going into public transport. You go to a big city, anywhere in this country, and what you'll find is people, the classic chugger look, with the tabard, the high-vis, very heavily branded with the charity they're collecting money from. A little bit of a spiel, try and catch your eye as you walk around. And key, I think, to all this, and this is where I think the innovation really comes in, this isn't about collecting donations in a tin, this is about people signing up longer-term direct debits or standing orders to give money to a charity, and then the charity has a long-term supporter whose donation they can rely upon unrestricted into the long-term, which is the kind of gold standard of giving. I did do a bit of background research, so 2003, 2004 is when the term really started to get a little bit of traction. Not always for the best reasons, for some people it's a mild irritant, for some members of parliament in about 2015, it became something they basically were calling for public inquiry about, which I think is going miles and miles off into the mad direction that some of our politicians like to enjoy. But there is no question that that has changed the landscape of both how charity try and collect money for the long term and how the charity sector as a whole is perceived. My last point very quickly, Andy's looking at me as if to say, wrap this up now, Russ. So super quickly, I'd just add, if you talk to kind of, you know, Ordinary punters, normal people going for dinner, chat to your friends, talk to them about charities. There is absolutely no question that on the street fundraising will crop up
1: as a topic of conversation. It's cut through like so few things in the charity world. Do you make a very persuasive case? I have to say, more so than I thought when we discussed this beforehand, what we were going to be talking about, and when you said that, I thought, "Oh, this is that's a terrible idea. This is not going to work." But actually, you say that in response to nearly every idea I pitch, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> but what I would say in return is. There is obviously, and you have sort of touched on this a little bit, to take away from this point, there is, there is a considerable proportion of the public who who really dislike face-to-face fundraisers and, and they find it quite difficult and they find the, the prospect of being approached in a public place by a charity representative as difficult.
2: There's a kind of classic capitalist answer to this though, which is if it didn't work, it kind of wouldn't happen. So charities clearly are able to recoup the money and put up with any potential brand damage, which is what you're discussing in order to kind of have this sort of process of direct debit sign up
1: it clearly seems to work okay that is you russ alina your turn
3: very persuasive very very (laughs) tough act to follow but my pitch is live streams so charity live streams on various online platforms unlike russ i did not grow up in a picturesque welsh village i grew up on the internet so actually
1: on the internet
3: (laughs) actually on the internet 24 7 you couldn't get me off it so the idea of growing up with content creators online and sort of forming these parasocial relationships with people that you don't actually know and you will never know but you feel like you know and you would do most things they say are cool is very persuasive when it comes to getting support both financial and in terms of awareness raising i think online digital content creators are people with a lot of power a lot of cachet specifically if you want to start to reach a younger audience people that you wouldn't necessarily find on the street or people who wouldn't open the door when you go knocking <laughs> and another thing that i think is super persuasive for charity live streams is the fact that most social media platforms digital platforms already have the sort of payment model or a payment system that is already incorporated into the platform. Because if any of you are familiar with like YouTube live streams or Twitch live streams, creators usually get payment or gifts or tokens depending on the platform from the audience as they perform, let's say quote unquote, as they are live. So you as a charity don't really have to do anything to make sure that the transactions comes through, the platform takes care of that for you. And then the content creator can just bank transfer whatever was raised in that one live stream. So I thought, you know, I think a lot of charities have moved towards that space during the pandemic because all sorts of in-person and outside sort of activities were not possible anymore. (laughs) We would have loved to do those. And it kind of became this new sort of mass participation online event, which was super, super useful and a, a great substitute for things that we couldn't, traditional fundraising that we couldn't do anymore. And it's so accessible to any charity. You you will probably find a content creator who is super happy to,
1: to support and do one for you, so.
3: Yeah, that's mine.
1: Another good case. And actually, I think your case has been strengthened by Russell's Session, that he chaired earlier today, where our three experts identified live streaming and gaming as one of the sort of big opportunities for the future. So it is an interesting one. But is
0: it suitably tried and tested?
1: Yeah.
0: What impact can you report?
3: Yes. Well, um, in the UK, actually, I do have a stat. I don't know if anybody in the room is familiar with the Jingle Jam. It happens once a year around Christmas, and there's a bunch of content creators coming together and doing a live stream, sometimes like a 24-hour, 12-hour, depending on availability. And the money raised then goes to a selection of charities, so charities can apply every year to be one of the beneficiaries. And in 2022, they raised almost 3.5 million pounds,
2: so... It's
0: pretty, pretty big numbers. Yeah. Okay. Yeah.
1: yeah the, the problem with
2: questioning Alina is that she nearly always has a statistic to back up her <laughs> argument, which is uh, frustrating. It's very detailed, but it's frustrating.
3: That's because I have to deal with you every day. Yeah.
1: We didn't. We forgot to mention that you're a really hardcore Call of Duty player as well, aren't you? You're going to be doing that I used
3: to be. I have a job now. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I actually said that as a joke. I didn't think that was going to be a real thing for you. But there we go. Uh, Assumptions and assumptions. Is it my turn?
0: If you like, yeah. Shall
1: I talk about mine? Okay. so I'm going to talk about something which in its first 25 years helped to raise an estimated £60 billion. Not million, billion. £60 billion, that is a lot of money. It was first introduced in 1990. It was introduced by the government. It's been refined and tested and changed since then. And it is worth an estimated £1.3 billion every year to UK charities. It's Gift Aid. That is the thing. Oh, you clapped. I like that. <laughs> I, thought that a, I thought that was a very optimistic pause. But <laughs> <laughs> there was some dividends. <laughs> that was nice. No, so first introduced in 1990, by, well, actually by Chancellor John Major at the time. Gift Aid has obviously added basically 25% to donations for charities um, from UK taxpayers since then. So it's been going for 33 years. And 25 years in, yes, it was estimated by CAF that it had helped to raise £60 billion, £12.3 billion of which was direct donations from the purse of the Treasury. And CAF at that point called it the world's greatest charitable tax relief, which, you know, I'm saying is is a pretty good claim. Uh, Obviously, it's been changed and amended since then. It's since had the addition of the Gift Aid Small Donation Scheme so that small charities can have things like collections or stuff that have gone into church plates, small amounts of cash added to those sums without any additional paperwork, which has been good. And it's obviously been amended so that the online element of it can change as well. And I'd say that you can't really argue with 60 billion quid. And actually, that was in 2015 they came up with that figure. So it's going to be a heck of a lot more since then. Come at me. So. People are
3: not <laughs> claiming it, I hear. Uh... Yeah, and the city needs overhauled.
1: Well, we, yeah. I mean, it's obviously not perfect, but then neither is the world. And I, I, would, argue, I would argue that 60 billion pounds is better than no pounds. And uh, there's been a lot of money raised there. Yeah,
2: but this is sort of slightly going down a, a blind alley, isn't it? Because it's not a question of what's raised the most money. Otherwise, I you know I suspect you're right. It's a question of the greatest innovation, and what you've described is it's a tweak to the tax system, which even as a former finance journalist, I struggle <laughs> to find as interesting. You gave it a lot of gusto. The numbers
1: are big, but is it as innovative as you're saying? Well, of course it is, because it's you know it's, it's resulted in 1.3 billion pounds of donations for charities every year at the moment that's a lot of money i mean you call it are you playing it down as a tweak but i feel like we should move on before you undermine my argument anymore <laughs> Lucinda, <laughs> let's turn to you shall we
0: yeah i'm a little bit frightened actually i'm about to get ripped to shreds by russell hargrove over there but my innovation is is very old school uh it dates back to the 19th century and it is charity shops so i appreciate that you may not automatically consider that to be a groundbreaking innovation. However, I would argue that the way that it has adapted, um, the way that charities have changed their usage of the charity shops is very innovative. So the first, possibly, charity shop was a fundraising flower shop in Mayfair, which was established in 1870 and was to raise money to support an East London mission the Salvation Army started with their salvage stores not long after and then we had uh, jumped forward almost 100 years, the Second World War, and the Red Cross opened their first charity shop in Bond Street in London in 1941 that was followed not long after by Oxfam in 1947 and it's still going today and it's bigger and better than ever before and in fact Yesterday, we heard from Claire Sadler from the British Heart Foundation, and she was describing how, in the current trend of all other forms of fundraising going downhill, actually charity shops are robust, they are bucking that trend, they are actually (coughs) profiting from the fact that poverty is really on the rise and uh, successfully raising money for the British Heart Foundation and, of course, the other array of charitable causes that um, have charity shops attached to them. And yes, yeah, sort of making good of bad situations. Not only are they raising money for fantastic causes, they are also helping people who need to access goods uh, for a cheaper price than they might otherwise. They are helping the environment uh, with this trend that started in, was it the 1950s, 1960s, of throwaway or single use make use and then move on they they addressing that yes and and generally helping people who are feeling the pinch so there's my argument
1: i mean i do love a good charity shop i do love a bit of bargain hunting who doesn't let's face it i
2: i find that very compelling especially the kind of the long history right i thought i was doing well going back to 1986 or whatever but (laughs) you've come back to 1870 with details as ever Are they in the right places? I've always thought it's about charity shops. You often get kind of rather, we're we're lucky in Third Sector Towers is in a rather nice bit of of London in Twickenham. You go down, there are loads of uh, rather smart charity shops, but I do always think, are the people who most need charity shops, are are they as well served as the rather well healed people of of West London? Does that get in the way of the argument of it being a great innovation at all? Definitely.
0: No, not at all. (laughs) 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 You've got charity shops everywhere. You've got them on Marlebone High Street, where you can pick up a dress for a, a tiny £2,000 and then you go to right the other end and you've got different charity shops uh, with different budgets, different price range, catering to different needs according to the area that they are in.
3: And we going to send this one. <laughs> Based on my my research on charity shops over the past year, I've written a few pieces for Third Sector about charity shops and how They've sort of come back from the pandemic and are thriving at the moment. And I think a lot of that has to do with what you're saying, the fact that you can get a 200-pound dress and you can get a two-pound T-shirt in the same place. And they are increasingly taken seriously as a significant player in the retail industry. And the way that the the publicity and the public perception of charity shops has changed over the past five years or so kind of proves how resilient they are as a model so yeah i think this thing yeah. might win i feel like you
2: guys are ganging up together um <laughs> yeah. this is a very visual reference for a podcast but the shirt i am wearing came from a dogs trust charity shop Does anyone not want to guess how much i paid oh, for it nice. <laughs>
1: i'm
3: gonna to say seven pounds
2: seven anyone anyone want to go nearer or up or higher than seven three go on Russ.
0: Ten. One.
2: <laughs> <laughs> uh, I tell what, it was £4.50, I can't be bothered to work out who was closest, but um, I felt £4.50, I, was, you know, it's got plenty of outings since then.
1: Okay, well we should definitely move on to discussions on the room, because we want to hear from you as well. There's going to be a microphone winging its way around the room to who's got a great fundraising invention that they want to mention to us now. Yes, there's one there at the back, handily close to the microphone.
2: Go on then, I'll start. I think the National Lottery is yeah. a really, really good invention. 25% of all its revenue, I think, goes towards charitable causes. It's like maybe two billion-ish last year. But, you know, rejuvenates arts, culture, heritage, nature, health. It's one of the most like versatile funders, kind of, yeah, touches all aspects of society.
1: Yeah, you are totally luxury. right. And actually, I had a short list of two things and my second thing, was the national lottery? No, because you're going to do this with all of them now. There'll be another one, you'll say, "Oh, that was the one I was going to do as well." What other ideas have we got? We have got one down here.
2: Thank you. What about mass participation events, um, particularly what London Marathon have done to grow um, mass participation in the UK?
1: Mm. Yeah, third on my list, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> well, you 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 have run. A, you're the only one among us who's run a marathon for charity, right? Um, I guess so. Yeah, yeah, and and that is true. I mean, we we did hear earlier, didn't we, about the rise in numbers of people who are applying for the London Marathon. I think it was yesterday, for those who are here, half a million people or something applied to take part in the London Marathon. And there are loads of other big events. I do fear as if there is a bit of fatigue going on with other sorts of events. You've got these iconic events like the London Marathon, I don't know, London to Brighton, Cycle, some of these big things. I wonder whether there could be a bit of a risk of sort of saturation. No, really
0: I disagree. Yeah. Okay? Because looking and comparing with Alina's suggestion, Fits in very nicely with the digital mass participation ice bucket challenge. I mean, how much did that raise? I don't have to figure off the top of my head.
1: <laughs> it was like thirty million pounds just yeah. for the Motor Neurone Disease Association alone. Yeah, and long jumping
0: long. into a bath full of baked beans.
1: That was fourth on my list. All oh, right.
2: Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, assume, I mean, an audience of fundraisers will know much much better than us. An awful lot of things then tried to copy what the ice bucket challenge achieved under pressure from sort of trustees and executive teams who wanted to reproduce all that money. And I suspect an awful lot of things then kind of died to death quietly online and showed that not everything does take off in the same way. So the ingredients are not always lined up in quite the way that everyone would want them to be.
1: But in terms of the original suggestion of the sort of organised mass participation events, I think you were probably referring to...
2: Yes, but then as you say, it's trickled down to what can you do online um, to kind of push the online fundraising challenges as well.
1: Yeah. Actually, probably most of you will know better than me that London Marathon breaks its own record basically every year, doesn't it, for the highest amount raised for charity by a single annual um, mass participation event, or I can't remember exactly what the wording is, but something like that. It is obviously massively successful in what it does. Thank you. Any other ideas from within the room? Yes, we've got one there. I'm fairly sure this is going to be something that's not on your list because it's quite contentious. <laughs> but um, it's, and I guarantee it's been going a lot longer than even charity shops. Um, Maybe French Revolution. And that's protest. If you look at Extinction Rebellion, in twenty nineteen they made two point five million pounds. Now that's not applicable, you know, you, I mean the British Heart Foundation can't go out protesting heart disease. But um, but I can definitely see ways in which it can be leveraged. Yeah, that's Did an they give aid
0: that? <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> well they probably could, couldn't they? I mean I'd say they would. What do we think?
2: I think that's cracking. I think that's a really compelling argument. Yeah, I mean, it's a little difficult to kind of broaden from the concept into application, right? So I'm not sure how far beyond extinction rebellion there are other examples we could draw on. But again, the whole point of innovation is what happens in five years, and ten years, and twenty years'
1: time, right? Yeah, I would. I would possibly add to that that you could potentially see it using it as a guerrilla marketing tactic, especially for smaller charities on the ground in their local community. Things like that could really raise attention to their issues. Yeah. It's a, it's a good thought. I like it. I like the left field nature of that one. Have we got any other thoughts from within the room? Going back to
2: online, I was going to suggest YouTubers who have you know millions of followers and they do fundraising shout out for a particular charity which they have a connection to. It's very been very very successful
1: recently.
3: Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think YouTubers have huge platforms at the moment, and YouTube itself has sort of incorporated the the live stream component into the platform itself, so you can do both, you can have people have all sorts of campaigns and there are huge, Like, if anybody in the room is familiar with Mr. Beast, he is a huge philanthropist and has been doing all sorts of challenges and these sort of attention-grabbing videos um, and the money does go to a lot of great initiatives. Now, whether this is just uh, clickbait on his side or not is a completely different question. I don't really wanna get into the ethics of that but it's such easy money for charities. Now, obviously you just have to form a relationship with somebody who has 10 million followers on YouTube.
1: It should be easy. Easy, yeah. Yeah. And we had another idea here.
2: I think match funding campaigns are also some innovative uh, that that's helping especially small charities in terms of expanding their donor base as well and also getting that matched funding, extra funding that they require.
1: Yes, yeah, so you're talking about things like the Big Give? Yes, that sort yes, of thing. the Big
2: Give, the Childhood Trust, yes.
1: Now, that, that's a really interesting idea, actually. The Big Give, it certainly had its rocky times at the beginning, if I remember correctly, way back. I've been at third sector for ages, but I remember small charities loving it but also complaining about it because it was difficult. I really feel like they've evolved it since then. It's been great. And obviously now the government does loads of match funding when it comes to big emergencies, whenever there's a major catastrophe in the world and the DEC launches the campaign they normally have, a, the government normally has a match funded element.
2: And I was going to say even before the DEC, international development charities benefit so much from the big government match funding schemes, the names of which have all escaped me, which is a very bad timing for me to forget what any of them are called, but there have been a whole series over the last 10 years, 15 years, and you talk to um, the charities in that area, state the obvious, right, you can raise 10 million quid and suddenly it becomes 20 million, that's Absolutely fantastic, and it's a way into government to talk to them about earning more money and fundraising more money in the future as well. So, yeah, uh, at the government level, it's been incredibly helpful.
0: Good. I agree with that. So, I think now is the time to cast our votes. It Russ, is.
1: can you give us the rundown? Yes, I'm going, to
2: get, I'm going to do a quick rundown so we don't forget any, and I'm going to go through them, we'll just have a show of hands, and I'm going to ask Andy... Well, we can't, we
1: can't have a show of hands, because no one can hear it on the podcast. Oh, OK, no, well... <laughs> <laughs> That's a slight flaw, isn't it? I'm not the multimedia reporter, so it's worth pointing <laughs> out. I, I tend to forget these no, things. We OK. See we need people to cheer. Right, And that's, okay. that's how that's how we're going to decide which is going to be the winning... I'm going to run gonna through
2: the them thing. now so that everyone's prepared, they can choose which one they want to cheer for, and then we'll do it properly <laughs> after that. So very, very quickly, just from the stage here, we've had Andy saying it's gift aid. We've had uh, Lucinda talking about charity shops. Alina says it's all about live streaming. I've said it's about chuggers. <laughs> you chaps out there, we've had YouTubers. We've had the National Lottery. We've had mass participation uh, fundraising. We've had protest. That's something for the future. And we've also had match funding. So... I'm just going to go to one, one after the other. Give us a cheer. Save up the one you want. First of all, Andy, who agrees? Gift aid.
1: Yes. yes. <laughs> oh, he did it first. That's like no one's going to cheer for the first
2: one. Seriously, you? if we get a little editorial commentary on every single one of these, we're going to be here until about <laughs> half past eleven at night. Okay, who agrees with Lucinda? Charity shops. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. Absolute state of this. Okay, Alina. <laughs> Who agrees with Alina on on uh, live streaming? Yay. Oh yeah.
1: Okay. Yeah,
2: down. Uh, don't feel under any pressure at all. But who agrees with me on chuggers?
1: <laughs> <laughs> Nobody. So predictable. Okay, who agrees?
2: Okay, getting down the list. Now you're going to vote. You're going to prefer your own. I'm sure. So uh, YouTubers. <laughs>
3: no, okay. I agree. For with those you.
2: listening at home, I think the gentleman most excited <laughs> was the gentleman who said YouTubers as well. Uh, who says national lottery? Uh,
0: yeah. Yeah. yeah
2: oh we have rumble of approval uh who says mass participation <laughs> oh, also pretty good um who says protest Yay. <laughs> <laughs> and finally who thinks match funding is the greatest innovation
1: yeah. <laughs> I feel like um, we've got a pretty inconclusive answer there. Well
2: I'm going to say it came down to between lottery and mass participation there, I don't know if people feel very differently and I'm going to say that I think lottery just edged it Is there, is there any strong disagreement out there? So that's what we ended up with.
1: All right, well, let's get people to choose between the two. If you, okay. think, <laughs> if you think it should be... What was it? Match funding and lottery. Yeah, I think
2: interrupting me without knowing exactly what <laughs> the options were. <laughs> okay, so it's lottery, but it's also mass participation Oh, sports. sorry, that one, yeah. So, uh, Andy, do you want to do the honours? No, go ahead. Okay. Um, so if you think the answer is the National Lottery, cheer now. Woo! Yes. And if you think the answer is mass participation, cheer now. Yes. There we are. We have an answer. These Mass Participation. It's all those London Marathon runners. It's all those Brighton cycle riders in their lycra raising money for good causes. And I'd imagine we're in a room full of people who've done their turns on the street corners, kind of cheering and waving the banners and all that. Um, And as someone who's done a run or two in their time, that does make the world a difference. Um, So, great. There we are. We have a winner. Well done, everyone.
0: That is just about it for this live recorded episode of the Third Sector Podcast. Thank you all very much for your participation and your attention at the end of two very long days. Yes. All that I think is left is to announce that very sadly, we're about to be halved.
1: Well, not literally, but it's (laughs) (laughs) it's like the French Revolution.
0: (laughs) So uh, if our loyal listeners, will be very familiar with the voices of Russ and Alina and both of them are sadly on their way out entirely voluntarily I must say. (laughs) Um, uh, Russ will be leaving us today so this is his last episode and Alina's final episode will be next week. Thank you very much to you both for tens of episodes if not more. We will miss you very much. Uh, However, Andy and I are still very much here and we have some great episodes coming up in the next few weeks so please do tune in and subscribe, Uh, we will be doing an episode in a couple of weeks about how to land a high net worth donor, we will be talking to the NSPCC CEO and next week of course we will be taking part in the celebrations for Small Charity Week. So without further ado, thank you to you all, thank you to our producer Nav Pal at the back and hope you'll join us again.
2: Thank you very much, everybody.
1: Bye. Thanks.